on X. Get in the hunt, baby. Me and Andy go out. We go grouse hunting. And to be honest with you, I just follow the dog. So I'll be wandering through the woods and I'll get turned around. I'll be like, I want to get back to my truck. Well, with Onyx. So if you're like me, have that sucker on your phone. Onyx, get in the hunt and get back to your truck. Hashtag man's best kennel. It's Gunner Kennels, baby. It's a kit. We had Addison on the, the podcast, a phenomenal dude, always innovating our industry. And one of the things that he brought up is it's a kit. It's not just the kennel itself. You've got the fan 2.0 for your summer, right? Like it's hot out. We got to keep that dog cool. In wintertime, you got the all weather kit. Keeps that poor body temperature in there so the dog doesn't have to work as hard to stay warm. They also have the magnetic door accessory that keeps that body temperature in there. And then the straps. Everybody thinks like, oh, I'll just go to Home Depot and get the cheapo straps. Well, listen, they developed these straps so that basically you can lift a VW bug with the two straps. So if you were to get in a car accident on the way to the duck blind or the training grounds, that dog is going to be beyond strapped and stay safe. Check it out. Gunner Kennels, baby. Slide into the DMs. We'll hook you up. RDT Systems, baby. Dog tested and dog tough. We've got those soft mouth dummies. Now listen, everybody knows that we need more bumpers. I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about adding bumpers to your repertoire. I like using white or black and white bumpers when I'm training my dogs for marks and even blinds. You can get the orange ones. I dig it. But add a bunch to your repertoire. And I'm again, I'm not talking about three to six. If you're working on T pattern, if you're working on blinds and pattern blinds, you need a bunch, a dozen, 18. The Soft Mouth Dummies by DT can't be beat. Check them out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. DT Difference. Let's go. All right, our number one asked question is revolving around force fetch. Whether your dog drops the bumper or duck at the edge of the water, or you failed a few hunt tests because the dog monkeys with the birds or won't pick up a bird, let me help you help your dog. Bunch of different breeds, bunch of different personalities, start to finish teaching you how to do it. Links in the description. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, we got Ray Vote from Purina back. He is in studio in a freshly cleaned podcast office. I'm very proud of Kevin. Helped me. It looks good. The, it looks great. I'm impressed. Thank you. The floor has been vacuumed. A pint glass did break and shatter all over the place. So barefoot isn't ideal. <laughs> although I think pretty much everybody is. We're good. We're good. You just got to tough it out sometimes. Thank you. I'm glad we're on the same page with this. But it is good to have you in-house. Glad to be here. Been uh, on the road for a few weeks now, so it's kind of nice to be be here for a few days. And glad I got a chance to stop by and we could do this. Yeah, absolutely. So tell everybody where you kind of had a cool adventure over the last few weeks. What were you doing? Well, it started really the 
about the 10th of June. So it's been about a month now and uh, started out, went from Georgia to Wisconsin and then went from there to Montana for the national amateur. And we were out there for the whole, for the whole trial. So about 10 days. And then I flew back to Wisconsin from there. Um, Met up with a good friend of mine, Craig Crook, who's also a retriever trainer. And the two of us flew to Argentina and did a three-day dove and duck hunt, which we've been planning for oh, about the last two years. Two to three years we've been planning this. And there's a lot of puppy puppy raising that went into the to the cost of getting to go down there. Yeah. And uh, got back from that and headed east. And we've been... New York, Connecticut, Maine, back to New York. Very good. So I want to jump into a whole lot of that. I do, I do too, but I, I forgot that you were at the national. So, oh yeah, start there. I've clearly obviously Please. never been to a national. Um, this field trial, everybody, the national field trial for the amateurs. Um, what's it like there, man? What's the experience like? It's a really neat experience, I think. Um, I mean, I've enjoyed it. I've been going to them. My first, actually, the first field trial I ever saw was the 1997 National Amateur in Virginia, Minnesota, which is 35 minutes from where I grew up. And then um, I've been to, but most of them since probably 2001. Um, really? So the last 20 years, I mean, I'm, I've missed a few in there, but been to a lot of them. It's just um, a lot of excitement, a lot of, a lot of work, effort, blood, sweat, and tears goes into getting qualified and and just being there and you know you're part of 100 120 of the best dogs in the country and you're duking it out for a week straight over 10 series mm-hmm. and it, it's just a, it's hard to describe it you know i mean if if you're into the the dog sports and that that's what gets you excited it, the the feeling the excitement the energy the nervousness the mm-hmm. all those emotions all those things that feelings that go into being there and for especially for the people competing, it's just it's. I mean, you can feel the excitement if, if you know if yeah. if watching really good dog work gets you gets you excited, which is probably part of why you're listening to this. Right. It's something everybody should experience if you haven't had the chance to do it. Yeah. What uh, What did they see? What did those dogs have to do at this national? Was there like a theme? You know how it, at least at Master National, it'd be like, oh, the th- I think the theme is going to be bridge birds or you know just stuff that you're monkeying with what did you think it was like this year yeah i mean over the course of 10 series so there's the national consists of three sets of landmarks three sets of watermarks two land blinds and two water blinds um i would say there were there was at least two birds thrown to an island or across a piece of water so that was maybe a I don't know if I'd call it a theme because there was other things, but you know, that was, you know, that's a hard concept for a dog at any level. So, um, you know, they had an Island bird, I think in the seven series. And then I believe they had an Island bird. Actually, that probably was more of a theme because they had an Island bird in the third Island bird in the seventh and a bird thrown across in the third and in the 10th. So those were, you know, kind of birds looking across channels. And so that was, uh, that was kind of a theme of the watermarks mm-hmm. and overall, I mean, it was a really good national, um, organiz- organized really well. Um, what was their water situation like? The water out there is beautiful. Is it? So it was in the Western Montana, then the mission Valley, um, 
there's multiple properties, all designed for dog training, uh, beautiful grounds. A lot of them, they're irrigated, so the ponds are full. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, you're in the backdrop, you're looking at snow-capped mountains in the background. That's and super cool. It's a, it's a great setting. I mean, this is the... I think this would be, this is the fourth time they've had it there. So the last, every time in the mountain, every national amateur in the mountain time zone for the last 16 years has been in Montana there. Gotcha. Did they run a series at Colby's place? They did. They did the last, um, let's see here. The the 10th series was at Colby's. And I think the ninth, the ninth series was at Colby's. Cool. And the water by so I think eight, nine, and ten were all at Colby's. That's really cool. That place looks awesome in the pictures that he posts on the old Facebooks. Oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, the property's amazing. Yeah. Um why well, describe to someone who's never seen a field trial. Because uh, we'll back up. You've been on the show before, we've given your background, but if you haven't listened, Kevin, will you look up the episode number for me, please? Um you know, you worked for Andy Attar, Rick Stosky, Rick Stosky, and Mike Lardy. <clears throat> trained professionally for like twenty years, give or take. Yeah, for, yeah. I think it was total twenty-one, really. Fifteen of those were with with Mike. Gotcha. And so, I get one of the questions that I meant to ask earlier, and it just popped back in my head is like, why are you going to the amateur? So as part of um, what I do with Prina is I'm in charge of... Uh, no, back, because you said back. you've been to okay, so many. Okay, sorry. Um, previously, so I would go um, when Mike would go. So as when our clients would qualify, we would go and we would do a week of pre-national training. Mm-hmm. And then we would be there for the week of the trial to help coach, um, help strategize a little bit. We'd go out and train in between series if we needed to with specific dogs. Mm-hmm. And that all mm-hmm. kind of started... Um, I would go and throw and shoot flyers and be part of that whole experience when I was younger. And then with Mike, probably from about 2011, which was actually the first one that was in Montana until 2019, when I went on to work for Prina, I went to all the nationals, both open and amateur. And at the amateur, I would, you know, we would set up the week at pre-national training and coaching and all that sort of stuff and then of course national open it was a little of both because we would i would be running dogs there and and some of the clients would be running their own dogs yeah uh it does make complete sense like you're competing at such a high level on the national level it's like it's part of your job to go to be there for these clients and and get them the best chance at winning possible yeah i mean a lot of these a lot of the clients i mean this was their highlight this was what they this was the highlight of their year they worked all year they came and trained they they listened to us coach and criticized and all you know just with the the attempt to get qualified to go run the nationals and that was really some of them would run their dogs in the national open as well but for for a majority of them that was kind of that was their that was their Super Bowl. That was their World Series. That was what they worked all year to get qualified and go to that national amateur. What did they have to do to qualify? So to qualify, you had to have a win in an amateur or in an open if it was run by an amateur. And then two more points. Gotcha. So And then field trials, all age is five points for a win, 
three points for second, one point for third, and a half a point for fourth. So gotcha. you would need, you know, win and two thirds, a win, a first and a second, or a win and four fourths. Gotcha. I seem like I would be the guy with the win and four fourths. You would never win. <laughs> uh, <laughs> saw that coming as soon as you looked yeah, at me. Yeah. Uh, to double back before I forget, <laughs> if you haven't listened to that uh, previous episode with Ray, it was episode 137 from July 14th of last year. Almost uh, we forgot to celebrate our anniversary. That's okay. Cheers. Uh, cheers to that. But it's good to have you back, my friend. Glad to be here. Time flies. Um, with Master Nationals on my brain, selfish question. We are, yeah, screw everybody else is my question. Um, it's at the end of October. So I've got all of August, all of September, and let's just say most of October. So almost three months of training. What are you thinking about doing, you know, three months, two months, one month, one week? you know, conditioning, what what are we working on and how do you prepare to try and get them to peak at the right time? And like, what's your process? Well, uh, honestly, um, it's a little bit for me too, because I actually have, uh, uh, my dog is qualified for the master national this year also. So I'm going to be uh, getting her ready. Um, you know, I, I'm going to, I focus on conditioning year round. So I may ramp it up a little bit now, um, just making sure that we're at peak conditioning level, both swimming and land. Um, I probably, my instinct right now is to probably challenge a little bit more. You know, like I said, we're three months out. Um, it's hard to maintain top, you know, being at their peak for three months. So right. I'm probably going to work on some bigger things, some harder things, um, maybe do challenge a little more by more multiple making more memory birds more multiples um that'll probably ramp up even more as we get closer i mean right now probably if i let me back up so if i knew i had a dog with uh some sort of issue okay loopy sits crooked sits um some of the other you know line manners things like that bird watching things that i know I'd probably take this time to kind of point my finger at those issues mm -hmm. and really try to work on that specifically. And then, you know, then I'd probably ramp it up and where I'd try to make the difficulty level harder. I'd want to be practicing harder than what they're going to see at the, at the trial or the test. Mm -hmm. And then as we get closer, you know, two to three weeks out, I'm going to work on a specific skill set, which for me going into a national was, you know, real technical things. So maybe more interrupted tests where, you know, you shoot a triple, you pick up a bird, you run a blind, you pick up the other two birds, more technical blinds under the, you know, poison birds under the arc of, of marks, uh, probably some extra cheating singles. Um, and just try to get some real fundamental things in where I don't necessarily want to point my finger at it the week before the, before the test starts. Right. I want the the week before I want those dogs to be sharp. I want that's when I want them coming into their best. So beginning of the week, I'll usually challenge a little bit pre-national week, but then it'll get simpler. I'm going to simplify. I'm going to do more broken down tests, more singles. I want them watching their birds, sitting, sitting good, watching their birds, 
marking sharply, getting in the water, changing direction on their blinds. I want them doing to do the real fundamental things the week before. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to practice on. Then the couple weeks before that is when I'm going to work on the maybe, I don't want to call them tricky, but the little more conceptual things that you might see, like the interrupted test, the poison birds, the more technical things where if they get in a little bit of trouble, I have a week to smooth it out versus, you know, you go out and you make a correction for chitting single and all of a sudden some dogs might overreact to that. Right. Well, I don't want to go into the master national with a dog that's overthinking it basically. Right. right? So I want, I want to make my, my corrections or whatever I need to a couple of weeks ahead of time and probably try to smooth it out. Now there's always exceptions to that. You have the dogs that are, you know, the outlaws that are always pushing the limits and, you know, for those dogs, I may not be as concerned if they get in a little bit of trouble right before. Right. But if I have a more sensitive dog, I kind of want things to run well. In our system, I felt like the dogs would perform at the nationals, kind of how they were training. So if we went into that national with a dog that really wasn't training well, for whatever reason, they usually didn't do that well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, I'm building up to having them sharp and doing fundamental things right before it starts. Gotcha. Um, on Adam and Jimmy's podcast, you talked about water conditioning and like hopping in a canoe or a kayak. What does that actually look like? So it's not mass chaos with them trying to climb on the kayak and paddle faster. <laughs> I mean, really, that's um, w when we used to do it, we used to have 24 dogs in the kennel. So we would usually do it in like four groups. So we'd have about six dogs. You need a little bigger piece of water so they're not just going to the nearest shoreline and standing there looking at you. Right. And if they were catching up, I'd use, you just try to go low. I mean, you can paddle a kayak faster than they can swim. Right. So I would just try to stay ahead of them a little bit, and we would match them up because you'd be surprised. You take four or five dogs out in the water, you're going to really you're going to see really quickly who's the strong swimmer and who's the lazy swimmer mm -hmm. and who's comfortable. And so we would kind of try to match it up so we didn't have – dogs spread out by 50 or 100 yards trying to follow you so but it's it's really not that you know we never used a collar we never did anything like that you just get in the kayak and call them and you might get a little splash down and jump in but knock on wood i was never tipped over very good dude yeah i'm trying to like unfortunately i don't think i have a pond nearby big enough where I can, because if they didn't feel like doing it, to your point, like they would just, they might jump in and follow me for 50 yards and then pop out, you know? And you're, you know, you're constantly looking and I talk to them, mm -hmm. you know, if they were wanting to go to shore, you can, you know, no call worries. them and yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't get yelled at a little bit, but, <laughs> but we didn't have to resort to, you know, I, I didn't, part of conditioning to me was about not only the physical aspects, aspects, sorry. But mental release, too. So they can just be a dog a little bit. And mm -hmm. if I'm having to constantly, if I'm using collar pressure, nicking them to, to follow me in a kayak or to not pull a little bit when they're on the harnesses, I just, I think that undoes some of the mental side of it. And I just, it's a release also. So it's, you know, they're not having to think about it. Because even if you go out and just run some singles, there's some mental stress involved. They got to sit, they got to watch the bird, they got to think about it. Yeah. And when you're, when you're conditioning with either the roading or the kayaking, they're just out having fun and being a dog. And we had a couple, they used to, you know, we had one dog that would bark at me if I got too far in front of her because she'd get mad at me. Yeah. 
Yeah. What, uh, how long would you have them swim and how long would you rode them? So it was kind of a, it was a gradual process to build up to it. So when we first started on the, on the harness, on the roading with the four wheeler, we'd start at 10 minutes, start our year out at 10 minutes. And then we would do two to three a week. And then we would build up, you know, three to five minutes probably. So week one, we're doing 10 minutes, probably two to three times. Then we're going to go, you know, 13 to 15. And then we're going to, so we would build up to 45. Now, if they went over probably 30, they got a full day off afterwards. So the longest ones, our typical routine was our longest was always on Saturday because then they would have Sunday off. Right. And so we would, you know, the only time we'd get to four, they might do 40. And there wasn't every, you know, once we got 45, it wasn't like they did 45 every time we went out. Right. You know, it varied, but we would get longer. We would do our long ones on Saturdays. They'd get the day off. Of course, temperature plays a big part in that. And then the swimming, you know, same thing. You'd start, you'd be amazed at how, how tired they are after 10 minutes of straight swimming. Yeah. And we would build that up to 20, maybe 25, but that's, that's pretty tough for them. Yeah. How, how fast are they going for 45 minutes? Like the rate at which they're moving, like how, how far are you going? Uh, So they're doing about a 10 minute mile average about six miles an hour. There's, you know, it depends on the dog. So smaller dogs would do five to six miles an hour. Bigger dogs would do six to seven. Okay. Wow. And we would match them up on their stride. So I don't want a, you know, tall, lanky, 80-pound male going with a 45-pound female with short legs because one of them's working a lot harder than the other, even though they're going almost the same speed. Right. So, but I would say it, it was close to a 10-minute mile when it was all done. You know, so if 45 minutes was about four and a half miles, usually. That's pretty good. I don't want to do that. I was going to say it's further than I'm about to run. <laughs> yeah, so 10 minute mile, I'll do one run for 10 minutes. Yeah. So, but it was, you know, they, they loved it. I mean, you'd yeah, get those, oh, you'd get that four wheeler out and you'd start putting the, we had the bars that attached to it. And I mean, they'd start barking like you were shooting a flyer right next to the kennel. I mean, they loved to do it. Yeah. So, and again, you know, it was that gradual process to build up, you know, we might get to 30, then we may back down for a week. Okay. Kind of like a rest week. Like you were, if you were, a human athlete preparing, right? You, you're not going to just, you, there's going to be a week in some weeks in there built in where it's a little easier. So we might do a get up to 30 or 40, and then we're going to do back down to 20, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't, so it wasn't all that often we did the full 45 minutes, but we would get them up to that. Yep. And then when it was hot, we would do, you know, Saturday mornings, it might be a 20 minute road and then a 15 minute swim. Mm-hmm. And so they'd be still be getting 35 minutes. So you're not training on that day. You're just doing cardio. On the big days, they're only doing the cardio. Um, the Mondays or Wednesdays when we would do it, they'd probably do a setup in the morning, mm-hmm. then condition. Uh, it was important to do the conditioning the last thing in the day, because now, especially when they're getting, you know, 20, 25 minutes, those muscles are fatigued after that. Cause long, so Back to the uh, the speed thing. What we wanted them is in a steady trot, which was generally around six miles an hour. But a steady trot, because that's the most, I would say, the hardest gait for them, right? They'd rather walk or they'd rather lope. Right. So um, that's the most, 
they had to work harder to stay in a trot the whole time. Right. So that's what we wanted to keep them in that helped build the, the hind limb muscle mass and help with respiratory rates and heart rates. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought. No, I'm so, yeah, that's my bad. Moving mics and stuff, but what? So, what is? How do you even measure that? Like the respiratory yeah, rates no, and things. I, I mean, say, that's, that's like, like super scientific, and I feel like you got like an Apple Watch on a dog. So we had, we were lucky enough. We had a um, canine sports medicine therapist uh, specialist, uh, Doctor Janelle Pell, who worked with us, and she helped us develop this program. She she has you know specific tools for measuring hind limb you know basically quadricep girth and then she could she would listen to their heart rates or count you know watch watch the breaths per minute and that was kind of how we tracked it and um she could you know so when we first started the that whole process we we used to figure that if we conditioned for the kind of our offseason, you know, we start our winter trip in the beginning of January. We don't run a trial till the first weekend of March. Mm-hmm. So we thought, okay, we have, you know, six weeks before we're in field trial preparation. So we would do six weeks of hard conditioning and then training would maintain it. You're right. So we started out, she did all those measurements before we ever started. And then every week or two, she would recheck and, at the end of that six weeks, everybody's muscle mass had increased, everybody's resting heart rate and respiratory rates went down like you would hope. Right. Then we ran five trials in six weeks. That's our winter schedule. Okay. And we didn't condition. By the end of those six weeks, everybody's muscle mass had went back down again and everybody's, the respiratory rates and the heart rates went back up. So what that proved to us is just training wasn't enough to maintain maximum conditioning. Right. So, you know, they're getting sprint training or sprint conditioning when you're training because they're taking off at a sprint. But with the, they're not working their long slow and actually helping their respiratory rates, which now I remember where I was going before. Um, so the reason to do that last in the day. So those muscles are fatigued. From training. From, no, from the conditioning. Oh, After right, the, right. You know, so they're in that trot, which is the hardest gate for them to stay in. Right. And you do that for 20 minutes straight. Now your muscles are fatigued. Now, if I went out and shot a flyer, what are they going to do? They're going to be exhausted. They're going to take off hard, right? Wait a minute. Okay. If I conditioned first uh-huh. and then I went and shot a flyer for them, right. they're not going to think about fatigued muscles, they're going to take off on a sprint after that flyer. Yeah. Okay. And when you try to sprint on fatigued muscles, that's when you're going to, when you can potentially pull or strain something. Gotcha. So doing that at the end of the day and then having a rest period help prevent muscle strains and, and pulled muscles. Right. Cause yeah. when they start, you start throwing marks, they're not thinking about self-preservation. <laughs> not at all. They're thinking about getting to that bird as fast as possible. Right. So that's why we would, I was trained first condition so we you know normal monday would be a setup conditioning tuesday train all day wednesday setup conditioning thursday train all day friday train all day long slow saturday morning then they had the rest of saturday and all the sunday off gotcha so training basically took place monday through friday correct conditioning saturday day off sunday just being aired and relax and recoup Mm -hmm. What did you guys feed, you know, as the Purina guy, what did you, how did you feed 
obviously each dog's different, but what was like the food regimen on average per dog? Did you float food, et cetera? So once a day feeding, unless I had a dog, the only exception was if we had dogs that needed probably more than say four and a half, five cups to keep weight on, Mm -hmm. then they would get a little bit in the morning just because I didn't want to put that bulk of food in their stomach at one time. But in general, everybody was uh, once a day feeding. Uh, They would get fed in the evening after they were done working for the day. I like to give them an hour after they got done working, if I could, um, floated the food all the time, mm-hmm. day, you know, every day in the kennel, on the road, floated food. Mm-hmm. Um, helped with digestion, helps with water balance. There were some studies, and I wish uh, I don't have the numbers, but there were some studies done that Dr. Arlie Reynolds did, who's brill- a brilliant, brilliant person, um, on how long it takes the food to get through the stomach when it's dry floated or like mush, like, like you would for a puppy. Yep. And the dry food took just straight dry food took, uh, it was an enormous amount of time, you know, hours and hours and hours, mm-hmm. way longer than you would like them to keep food in their stomach. The floated food went through, I think in a couple hours, which was ideal because you could maximize the nutrition nutritional value get the nutrients out of it but then it would get through the system and the the mush for the older dogs was almost through their system too fast like it didn't it wasn't enough time for them to absorb everything interesting so i would say we float the food 80 percent of the time you know like maybe the reason i do it is to make sure they're getting enough water throughout the day you know how like, like some dogs just don't want to drink but you know they need it especially and for us on the road it was a water balance was always a big thing you know they Major. eat and then a couple hours later they're thirsty yeah well i'm on the road i hate for them to come out and just either a not have enough water at night where in the morning they're just completely filling their stomach with water mm-hmm. or you wait too long afterwards and then you let them out one more time at night and then they tank up and then you're putting them away on a, with that so it was a big balance to us to have them have the proper amount of water where they're never really tanking up all at one time. Yeah. So kind of doing that, you put we'd float, we'd probably put more water in on the road, so it, um, they got quite a bit with their food, and then we tried to keep water in with them in the truck all the time. If not, at least you know hour and a half after they ate, they were getting watered, and then trying to avoid that come out. We yeah. would air, you know, we aired. Eight, nine o'clock at night. Right. And they jump in a pond and drink 10 gallons. Yeah. Or drink a whole, you know, you put a bowl out and they just try to drain it. Right. Try to avoid that. Yeah. No, I I agree. We do the same thing here. I think it's I, the reasons you had it are thoughts I had, but it feels good to hear you say it. Um, but I just always thought like, you know, any chance I can get to make sure they're hydrated is good and especially with the humidity that we have here and you know they're on the truck all day you know they're out training and working but if they're not working they're sitting waiting their turn and it's you know safe you know everybody it's safe in the trailer but it's you know you're in the shade and it's still you're sweating type of thing and so these dogs need to have their water and be be cool um all right let's get back on track because I had some other. Can we jump back into Argentina, or you still got other stuff? I got. I feel like I want to talk more training. What do you, do you want, want to talk about Argentina? 
I'm here. I'm here for Kevin wants Argentina. Let's knock out Argentina because it is a badass story. You went for a three day hunt. What is it like? All right. Yeah. Argentina. What is it like? I have a million questions. Like, did you get to eat the ducks? Did you, what did you do with them? Do you like, what is the hunting culture? Like hit me. So we went to a lodge. Um, it was about four hours, four, well, almost five hours from, um, from Buenos Aires. We flew to Buenos Aires and then you get a ground transfer. Um, lodge was great. Actually, the only Orvis Lodge in Argentina. It's called Los Buoys. I would highly recommend it to anybody that's that's looking to do that trip. Um, so we you fly overnight. We flew Milwaukee to Atlanta. You leave Atlanta at 10 p.m. You're in Buenos Aires at 9 o'clock the next morning. And um, so they pick you up. They take you to the lodge. Uh, you do a hunt that afternoon. Typically, their afternoon is a dove hunt. When we got there, they actually took us on a duck hunt. Then the next day, we hunted ducks in the morning, um, actually Perdiz, which is an upland upland bird, and then uh, dove dove shoot in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Same thing the third day, and then the fourth morning, we did a duck hunt in the morning, and then they take you back to Buenos Aires to 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 fly back out. And Generous uh, limits. So general, the ducks are 20, 20 ducks a person. Uh, the Perdiz were seven a person. What do they look like? They are, they look like a small hen pheasant, brown, um, probably chucker size. Okay. Maybe a touch bigger than chucker, but pretty brown. They hunt those with that pointing dogs. We would, we, you walk, but you were hunting with a pointing dog there. And then the dove shoots when we were there were, you know, a couple hours in the evening. Cool. And there was no shortage of, of birds that, you know, the doves are, I mean, there's no season and there's no limit. That's wild. Do they have dogs at all? Other, I mean, you said the pointing dogs and I'll, I do want to touch on that, but because we're, we're retriever guys, did they have anybody or did they have bird boys going out and getting them? They didn't have any retrievers for the ducks. Um, they said they used to, but at this point they didn't have any. And then, so you would, you would shoot. You had a kind of like a guide, bird boy. He was with you. He kind of would, you know, tell you when they're coming, call the shots some, mm-hmm. and then he would keep track of the birds that you knocked down. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when you were done, we won't, I mean, I don't know what everybody does, but it was have fun for us. We were, you know, it was really knee deep water. We had waders and yeah. we all, we just went and helped them pick up everything up. Sweet. So what type of, uh, there's got to be different types of ducks down there than, than what you shoot here in central New York. Like what types of things were you looking at? Um, so they had rosy bills as kind of their main, which is a black duck with a, a real red bill. Rosy. Rosy bill. <laughs> bill. And uh, then there was. A, Not to be confused with the rosy palm duck. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, uh, there was a few different kinds of teal. There was cinnamon teal, ring teal, and silver teal, all beautiful birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a tree duck, and then they had uh, a variation that was called a white cheek pintail. And all, uh, you know, my, the, my, I was a little, you know, you can't import the birds back. I would have right. loved to have brought a few birds back for taxidermy because sure. they were, they were gorgeous, but um, it was just, it was so much fun. And um, shooting was great. The lodge is phenomenal. They have their own chef. We had, so we, we had Perdiz. We had, we ate Perdiz, we ate Dove, and we had Duck when we were there. So they utilize some of the birds. Of course, sure. the volume you're shooting, they're not going to, 
use as many, but the the locals, I mean, there would be people waiting when we'd come back from the boat launch in the morning and to get birds, to really? get ducks. Mm-hmm. And so they, they do, um, they do use the birds and, and there's a lot of, um, you know, little villages and, um, houses and, you know, so they would come and, you know, they would come and, and take the birds and, cool. and use them. That's cool. Did they cook it for you in a specific way where you're like, dude, I gotta, I gotta get this rest. You're like, Ooh, that's some Argentine. You know, they had, they had, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure what they did, but it was good. I mean, the duck was, was phenomenal. You know, I'm not a big, just like, okay, let's just grill a duck, but you know, the sauces that he used and Mm -hmm. the, I mean, it was everything. There was not a bad, not a bad meal in the, in the few days we were there. It was outstanding. Everything was great. Good for you. Good for you. It is a bucket list place. I'd like to go. Um, I had told you the story of Peru uh, getting, what do they call it? Yeah, when you were down in South America, did you get almost arrested? Like Uncle Bob? I, yeah, I did. You know, I wouldn't say almost. <laughs> we like to tell, we like we like to say that we were slightly detained. Yeah, but it was you know to it wasn't a really good exciting story. I had a double A battery in my waders, and that was uh, that was the extent of That's of awesome. it because you can't you can't have batteries in your check baggage. Yeah, so it it turned out to be pretty boring. But you know, we like to. It's uh, say we loco. Yeah, yeah okay. loco. We were on a, a train going to Machu Picchu in Peru, and we met these Argentinian folks. They had like a bar. We weren't supposed to be there, but once we got in there, the folks were super nice and enjoyed us, so we got to stay. Um, basically wandered around the train and walked into a VIP area, and they let us stay. So I'm talking to this dude from Argentina, and he invited me to come duck hunt with him. I'm like, you know, that would be amazing. But I just, you know, you know how it is. Like, just like everybody invites you to go yeah, duck hunt. That sounds cool. He totally knew that. No, listen, yeah, I can be real nice to this guy. Yeah, this guy's probably going to buy me a drink. Uh, yeah. I'll just tell him that he can come fly halfway across the world and come hang out. Okay. But I saw you coming. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not an easy, easy venture to get there. But it was, um, if, if you have that on your list, it's definitely worth doing. Yeah, I bet. Well, all right, let's get uh, back into some retriever training stuff. Um, earlier, we were talking about quirks that you wanted to work on for pre-national training. Um, and you had said loopy sits, slow sits, line manners, watching birds. Let's break down each one of those segments and how you handle them for each dog and maybe describe what you know just a loopy set is and then what you're attacking it like okay where do, where do you want to start well, loopy set i guess is the first one i wrote down so <laughs> you said loopy or crooked set so yeah. what uh can you just like paint the picture for, for folks yeah. listeners please so okay so crooked you know you stop the dog with the whistle it doesn't fully turn around it sits sideways basically to you so it's sitting instead of sitting and facing you square it's sitting off to the side so that would be what i would call a crooked sit uh loopy sit is when you blow the whistle they kind of coast or um you know take 10 yards you know they're picture a straight line when you blow the whistle and then all of a sudden they're 10 yards to the right or the left of it by the time they put their butt on the ground Mm -hmm. So 
I would like them to, in a perfect world, they're going to sit square to me and they're going to try to sit quickly. Now, I do recognize that dogs with more momentum and more speed are going to naturally take a little bit longer to stop. So try to be realistic on if I feel like they're giving me effort to stop quickly or not more than always just, well, that was five yards too far or, or that was quick, you know, just trying to read some effort on the dog's part. Um, so kind of that whole process, if I wanted to point my finger on it and work on it, I'm going to go back to pile work, which, I think you know, we t- actually talked some about pile last time. Um, so I'm going to try to recreate my standard in the simplest environment, which is going to be the pile. So I'm going to have an identified pile. They're going to know where it is. I want to be far enough away where I could stop them two or three times on the way to it. And so I'm going to send them. I'm going to stop them. If they're going to sit crooked, what I tend to do is I'll do like a little toot toot with almost uh, looks like a little bit of a bow, like you kind of bend forward a little bit. And I'll do that at the same time I do the toot-toot. So then as soon as they straighten out, I blow the sit whistle again and cast. So what I want to do is get where I can do that little that little bow and get them to straighten out without the whistle. Mm-hmm. And then I want to then I'm gonna to start to mix in a little bit of a nick with that when they don't do it on their own. So they're gonna to try to straighten out on the before that little correction comes. Mm-hmm. Do you use the continuous button in a nick fashion or do you just use neck? I use the continuous in a Nick fashion. Sam's. Bismuth. Hey, did you know that bismuth weighs more than steel? It's kind of a no-brainer, but maybe you didn't know that little fun fact. So what that means is you can shoot a smaller size than if you were to be shooting steel. So for instance, let's say you shot three-inch threes, which I used to shoot before I shot Bismuth. I now shoot fives. That means you've got more BBs in each shell going down range that packs the same or more punch. So more BBs down range means more likelihood of hitting the duck. And with that Bismuth, more likely that that duck is going down better than doornail. You and your dog get the retrieve. Bingo, bango, bongo. Bismuth by Kent. From the duck blind to the holding blind, baby, it's Purina. Our young dogs are eating the puppy blend. Large breed puppy formula should be fed to puppies from eight weeks when you get that little bundle of joy home, that little cuddly wuddly buddy, all the way to about a year old. We want that dog to develop at a good, consistent rate. We don't want them to grow too fast, too soon. And so that puppy formula is going to help accomplish that goal. It's going to give them all the nutrients to develop their bones, their joints, their ligaments, everything right. Feed that puppy formula till 12 months old and then flippity-floppity to the 30-20 pro plan. Marshwear Clothing, the brand that represents the things that me and you love. Duck hunting, dogs, fishing, the great outdoors. I met these folks at Seaweed this year in South Carolina, and I cannot tell you enough what great people they are, but I also love the clothes. Whether I'm out training or going out to a nice restaurant, but still, you know, like to look like the way I look, like a good old Uncle Bob. It's awesome gear. Comfortable, durable, bad to the bone. And you can save 15% with the code LDGD15 at checkout marshwearclothing.com and then on a loopy sip when i start to read that momentum that they're not trying to stop quickly i'm going to blow a second whistle with a correction okay so so toot loopy set 
toot with a correction. When I can read that they're not trying to stop quickly. So this is, it's a good discussion because I feel like this is a, a thing that I used to do wrong and I'm trying to be really cognizant of my timing on my corrections where I would toot, it ain't happening, burn into a toot again. So it'd still be the set next set, but I feel like, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. I So I like to blow that second whistle almost like, okay, I told you to sit. Now you're not sitting fast enough. So I'm telling you to sit again with the correction. Simultaneously tweet. You're holding on to the whistle and the button. Well, there, I mean, you know, I mean, the timing is pretty quick, but I want that whistle. I want them to be hearing the whistle before they're feeling the correction. But they've already heard the first whistle. They've heard the first whistle. I'm reading that they're not stopping. Then it's, yeah, I mean, it's pretty simultaneously, but I want the whistle to be just a little bit ahead of the, so they're getting that command before they're getting the correction. Very good. Thank you. And then, so, and the beauty about power work, and I can't remember if we touched on this specifically or not, but I can create episodes of success and failure on that pile based on how quickly I stop them. So if I send them and I stop them, five yards away, 10, you know, 10 feet in front of me, they're going to be much more likely to stop quickly because they don't have that momentum. Correct. So then I get, if I get the proper response, I can praise the proper response. If I want to challenge them, I let them get three quarters of the way to that pile before I blow the first whistle. They have a lot more momentum built up and they're going to be less likely to stop quickly unless they're trying to. Right. So, so how I, are you praising them? I just say good. They stop quick. Good. Okay. And then, and, and, you know, I'll stop multiple times quick, you know, all the way down there. Good. You know, they sit quick. Good. They sit quick. They sit quick. They sit quick. Okay. Now we're going to challenge. They get corrected. I'm probably going to simplify again by stopping them quicker because I'm wanting to start to them to understand the difference between the slow sit when they get in trouble and the quick sit when they're, when they're getting praised or they're, they're not getting corrected. Right. So I'm going to do that. And to, when I feel like they, which may be a day, maybe two days, depending on the dog, how, what they're, you know, how quickly or how bad it is, you know, maybe it's two, three days, maybe it's one day. And I think, okay, this, I'm not going to get much out of the pile. Then I'm going to go to BB blinds, which I know is something else um, that you wanted to talk about. So I do, but so I, I still have a little bit of questions on the pile work. So you know, one of the things that I have to juggle in my head, and I'm sure you do too, is attitude. I know I'm grabbing beers for everybody. My bad, everyone. Uh, attitude. So popping, anticipating the whistle, um, leaving slow, you know, just like are you giving freebies? Is it, you know, like freebies, meaning they get to go all the way to the pile. Then the next one I'm stopping, 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 stopping one stop. You know what I'm saying? Like, how are you in your head? You're reading the dog, obviously, but thinking about it. What Certainly. You I mean, that you just hit the nail on the head. If I have a dog that's got a little, but doesn't have as good a momentum or doesn't like yard work as much. I'm, I'm going to send more without stopping. If I have a dog that just throwing dirt in my face every time, he's going to get stopped more mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be as worried about it. Um, and again, you know, we're not typically, we're not doing this for 
you know, 20 sins for five days in a row here. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, what I'm trying to do is put that tool in my toolbox. So at the next step, if they get corrected, they understand completely what that correction's for and how to respond properly. Mm -hmm. I got you. I dig it. No, I will say, you know, when I'm going through yard work the first time, there there's many more freebies and I'm not stopping as frequently. So I'm using this with a three, four, five-year-old dog. Right that all of a sudden this loopy sit has come up and now I've, you know, I've been trying to get my, get qualified and I was, okay, now we got our six passes and now we have a couple months. Now I can point my finger at this a little bit versus putting pressure on something in the middle of trying to run where I can't uphold that standard because all of a sudden I'm at the test next weekend. Right. So if I'm correcting it in training, then they're getting away with it at the test. I'm not really fixing anything. I'm just teaching them the difference. That's right. That's where I feel like I'm at with one dog. I mean, it is what it is. Like I had to do it. I didn't have a choice. Yeah. And now I've got three months. And so it's like, okay, what tools in the tool belt can I re-put back in without having it be like, I don't want it to be tough days for him every day. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to having fun and training. You know what I mean? So good, good stuff. So, uh, bird boy blinds. So I'm going to take what I, I'm going to take what I just taught them on the pile work mm -hmm. and then I'm going to go to BB blinds, mm -hmm. bird boy blinds. So what that is, is a, um, you know, bird boy person, um, probably 40 yards or so away with a pile of bumpers in their hand. And they're going to drop a bumper and they're going to walk about six or seven steps straight sideways. And they're just going to stand there and you're going to run the dog to that bumper dog's not watching them drop it. So it's, it's a blind for the dog. And the reason we do, I'm going to do this with a dog that is through all the, you know, this isn't just a normal step that every dog gets. This isn't something that I start running with dogs before they can do poison birds, because I don't want to teach them to just run out to a gun in the field and start hunting. Mm-hmm. Right. They need to learn how to run blinds to the end of the field or past gunners before we're going to introduce this. So our loopy sit again. Okay. Now kind of the same principle, we can do our success and failure a little bit, but I'm, I'm running them to that spot. So, so, so I'm going to get the repetition or can they can't see. All right. I'm sorry. Cause this is like my big, I don't get them and I try to understand them. So short grass, tall grass, white Shorter. bumpers, orange bumpers. Usually I'll have two or three orange or white bumpers to start with, but mostly orange. Um, shorter cover. You know, I don't want the end to be messy, but I don't want them to see it from 20 yards away. Okay. Um, so usually I'll do a couple white ones just to kind of get going, and then it's it's orange bumpers. Um, but the reason to me, the reason to do BB blinds isn't to get good at BB blinds. It's the work on that specific problem. So normal course of training for for me, because, again, I'm a little bit more of the filter. You know, I'm not running a blind with every set of marks I do. Mm -hmm. But even if you did, so say you did, that's five land blinds in a week. Maybe you do a double blind. So maybe you're doing six or seven land blinds over the course of the week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what are you blowing? You're probably blowing average three, four, five whistles maybe. Mm-hmm. So if I do five blinds and I blow five whistles, I'm getting 25 stops. Right. If I do BB blinds and I run a dozen, I'm probably going to get, I might get five stops on each of those. So I'm going to get, 
maybe 70 stops in one one day of BB blinds. I mean, give or take. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Give or take, right? But I can really work on that specific thing, and I can use same correction sequence that I used on the pile or praise at that close distance. I think, you know, if they're 200 yards away and you yell good, I don't think they know what you're saying. But if they're 20 yards away and they stop really quickly, I can say good. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that repetition. So now if I do that three, four, five days in a row until I feel like they're really making that effort to stop quickly, now I feel like I can move back in the field. And I'm not doing other cold blinds when I'm doing this. I'm just working on one session of BB blinds a day, you know, temperature, dog, you know, all that sort of stuff. But maybe it's eight, maybe it's eight, maybe it's a dozen, maybe it's 14, you know, and I'm starting to see that progress over them trying to stop quicker or trying to straighten out. And I just feel like I can get that repetition that I can really cement that in because I feel like for us, for trial training, I mean, we might run landmines two days in a week. So, you know, if I I work on the loopy sit on Monday, and then I don't do another landmine until Thursday because of the trial. You know, there's just to me, it's too much time to really, really change that whole course of behavior. Right. All right. So you're thinking we do the pile work for a day, maybe two, two maybe two, three, three days. Whatever. Yep. Uh, and what you said a distance where you can stop them a few times. So 75 yards. Oh, no, yards. no, not that far. Okay. I mean, I'm talking. Um, Maybe time, you know, your normal pile work, maybe half again or tw- twice as long. So, I mean, it's all probably, what's that, 20, 30? Okay. Yeah. I'm so, not doing double T. Like, I mean, if, you really, if I was doing 100 yards, I could probably stop them. A bunch. A bunch. But, no, this is all, because you also want the repetition of that. If I'm doing right. a 75-yard pile, I'm only going to get to send them a few times before they're tired. Right. Yeah. Great point. Okay, so then the bird boy blinds, you're doing, like, walk me through it again. So we've got a, a bird boy with a bunch of bumpers in their hand. We start with white, then we move to orange. They place it down when the dog's not looking. Walk. Like, yep, six or seven steps. Okay. We, we run the dog, picks up that bumper. He drops one where he was standing mm-hmm. and walks six, again. Six or seven steps. In the same direction. And then you can have him turn and go back the other way at some point. But it's just kind of in a, you know, in a fairly boring, shorter cover field, and I'm getting that repetition. Can anything negative come from it? I mean, I'm sure. I mean, you can. I mean, I'm sure you can make it at some point. You can turn anything into something negative. Um, I can't say that I've had it where I did it and I thought, man. I mean, maybe it didn't work as well as I wanted, but. I can't remember going away from it thinking like, oh, now I have a bigger problem. Right. Like like I was thinking like running at the gun or uh, flaring the gun because they're like, oh, I'm getting pressure from a crappy well, set and I'm the, looking at this. You know what I'm saying? Like looking at this guy or they're putting things. That's together. one of the other things I like to use them for is for gun flaring because six steps is not a big degree of separation. No. So they have to kind of address, you know, look out there and look at him and be willing to go near him. They don't have to go perfectly straight at him every time, but they have to not be taken out, you know, 
45 degrees to the side or 90 degrees to the side, right. they got to kind of address that gun in the field, which is again, another tool for an older dog, because once they go through all the steps in the processes, some of them don't like to go close to guns. Mm-hmm. Once they learn what old falls are and poison birds and things like that. So right. that's one of the things I would, that I do to try to make them comfortable again, because how you handle it, you know, you, you don't have to use, if they don't want to run at the gun, you can use attrition you're not necessarily putting pressure on them for not going close to the gun. Right. But I'm also feeling like I did my homework. So if I'm putting pressure on the sit, they know what that's for. Cause we just dealt with it. If they just, if I came randomly from a bad day in the field and point them at a gun and then they started getting in trouble for not saying that could be a different story. Gotcha. Makes sense. I agree. Uh, all right, so we we addressed the loopy sit and bird boy blinds. I feel like that dog I was talking about that I ran a bunch in a row, this is something I need to go back and deal with um, as well as line manners. So kind of the same thing. We used to uh, – our starting point with line, if I had a dog creeping mm-hmm. or noisy – we had a we called it a, a noise drill or a steadiness drill. And it was kind of same principles I c- could create success and failure. Same thing, you know, person with a pile of bumpers and a pistol 30, 40 yards away. And they would shoot and throw. The dog moved or made noise or whatever, whatever I deemed unacceptable. And I was gonna make a correction, whether it be stick or whatever, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't get to go. Just go and pick it up. Or he'd just or throw another one, throw another one. And so what the variation in this, you know, it sounds pretty basic. The variation came when we could either make the throws more exciting or more boring. So if I shoot right. and throw, the dog moves, he doesn't get to go. The next time we throw it without a shot, if he moves again, still doesn't get to go. And it may be where you get it as boring as you literally just flip the bumper a couple of feet. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to get him to not do whatever you know to do whatever you deem is acceptable and as soon as he does that he gets the retrieve Mm -hmm. and then you can repeat it you know i mean everything from hey 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 bang 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 to basically dropping a bumper at my feet because they're so excited right and what i want to do is i want to show them that sitting there being quiet being still is what gets them the reward instead of the shenanigans that most of those dogs get into, right? The bouncing around, the whining, mm-hmm. barking, creeping, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's trying to, it's an effort to reprogram that dog into thinking, if I sit here, I get what I want. Right. You know, it, so often those high dogs, you, you make a correction and you send them like everybody has, I've done a million times. Right. You, and that just, I feel like the dogs are like, all right, I'll take this butt kicking because yeah. I still get to go get the dog. It hit, it hit me so I can go. Yep. You know, like this is just part of the process. I'm going to walk up here. I'm going to bounce around. He's going to give me a nick. He's going to use a stick. He's going to do whatever, and I'm going to go get the bird anyway. <laughs> right. So what, you know, there's you, there's nothing to make them change that behavior if they're willing to tolerate that. Right. So that's kind of where the reprogramming there comes in. And then I take that same thing. I take that to the field. So I'm going to do singles off my multiple move. I'm going to have that same standard I had in the yard and your bird, he may just throw a bunch of birds until he's quiet and until he's, or doesn't move and then try to build that in. I've done it where I get to a triple. They move on the third bird of a triple. 
we pick them all up and we start over. And he has to watch again, or do you put them up? Yeah, I may pick it up and rethrow to singles, or I may pick it up and redo the multiple or break it down. Um, I d- personally don't feel like I've made a lot of progress with putting a dog away. Okay. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I'd rather do that than let them get away with something if I can't get the re- desired result. Mm-hmm. But I've had, I don't feel like they learn from just getting put away and not come, not doing it. So to me, I think they learn the best when you can show them what's right and what's wrong and, and kind of they learn the difference between the two. So if I'm just going to put them away and not come out till tomorrow, I almost feel like they're going to be more excited because they didn't actually get what they wanted. Right. So if I can get them to give me the de- desired result and then they get what they want, you know, maybe they don't think about it that way, but that seems to make, that's what makes the most sense in my head. So one of the things that I, I do, and I, I'd like your input on this would be, I, I, I have switched it up. It, it It's like a feel, a gut feeling, but let's say I throw a triple and they move. Typically I haven't had a ton of problems with vocalness, but it, it, maybe you had a test I do, but in training I don't type of deal, but a little bit of movement. Cause if you get a little pitter patter here, if they take an inch at the test or trial, they're going to give you a mile. Do you think it has more value in literally having them do it until they can do it? Like watch it until they can do it right versus what I'm doing. I mean, I, that's the way I've felt like I've had the best luck with it. Okay. But that doesn't mean I don't mind putting them off to the side and honoring. But so my thing is if you put them off to the side and they honor and they don't move or they don't make any noise or anything, they should have earned it. They should get to go. Fair. That's a good point. You're a smart dude, bud. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, they get test-wise, right? So you get the dog that doesn't move a muscle in training. They're smart. They figured it out. Whether Do you, do you ever run without a collar to try and create that situation? Do you... You know, are there ways you can manufacture a movement to be able to recreate the test or trial? If you were in your backyard training and you didn't have the collar on, they would act more than the collar, personally. Unless now there are certainly dogs that become aware of when they have the collar on. Um, We were very specific about how kind of the program and how training went to try to limit the difference between training and the field trial. Um, Such as? You know, they we didn't pick on them a lot between the truck and the, you know, in, in the holding, in the line or the holding line. So in training, if every day they get nicked three times between the truck and the line, the first thing that happens when you get to that test, what happens? You don't, you can't they do it. They don't get corrected. And there's their first signal that something's different. Very good. You know, um, randomizing corrections a little bit. So not saying that like we let them get away with a lot of stuff, but so the first time they maybe don't give you a perfect cast, they're not getting, you know, if every time they don't take a cast in training, they get corrected, corrected, corrected. Same thing. They don't take the first cast perfectly in the field trial. They don't get corrected. Something's different. Mm-hmm. Um, we use boom guns and popper before that popper guns. So if all the dog ever hears is a pistol going off and then you get to the test or the trial and the first thing that happens is they hear a duck call and a, and a shotgun. Yep. There's their first signal. 
something's different. hundred percent. And that's all not so much because that without a collar, but it's their, their environment they have new dogs, you have new trucks, you're in a new property. So to me, to work on something like that, I'm going to try to get to different training groups. Um, I mean, it's harder, it's more effort, but you know, try to find another group close to you, especially easier if you're an amateur, Right. like, you know, go to a pro's training group for a couple of days and day train with them and just put that dog in that different environment where there's different dogs to smell. There's different properties. Um, you know, if you're on the same property all the time, same thing, you go somewhere different. There's yeah. your trigger. You know, if you never take your dog to the holding blind on a lead and training person, yeah. you know, yeah, all there's um, all, I, yeah. Think um, about all those little things that are different. You know, you park in training 10 feet away from the line. Now in the test, you're parked and they got to walk 50 yards. Yep. And all of a sudden they have a leash on when that never happens. I mean, all those little triggers to me are what teach the dog when they're at the trial or at the trial or the test more so than if they have a collar or not. Cause I bet you a lot of those dogs, you could go to the test, put a collar on them and they'd act like an idiot. Yeah. Or you take it off in training and they know the routine and they're still going to be good. Yep. I think I said it. Uh, about three minutes ago, but you're a smart dude. It, you know, what it comes down to is being detail oriented and disciplined enough to do the stuff that's annoying, like put grabbing the chain and taking them on the walk to the line and parking further away. And oh, a thousand percent. We used to do it too. You know, we started using the Soresto collars for ticks mm-hmm. several years back. Well, in a trial, you can't have the tick collar on. Well, so what happened? You, you know, and those collars are just tight enough that when you take them off, they pull back a little bit. And so we started, you know, a couple tests a week. We'd take the collar. We'd take this. We'd still train with the e-collar, but just taking that Soresto collar off was something that only happened at a trial. And dude, my, I have like many pet peeves. And one of my pet peeves is when you go to take that chain off and they just like, like mm-hmm. rip their head back and they're like, I'm in, you're out. It's my time. And you're just like, son of a bitch. I hope this goes okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, all those little, I, I'm i more of a believer in, in the environment causing it than the collar. Now, we were very strict. You know, when the dog came out of the truck, they sat down, they got the collar on, then they would go air. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't take the collar off till they were back at the truck on a stakeout. So, we weren't taking, putting the collar on, taking the collar off up online in the holding blind. I just think those were also things that made them more aware of when they had it on and, and not. So on right. the truck, it's on. They do their whole thing. Yep. Strap them on the stakeout, and the collar comes off at the same time. So it's almost like they're not even they don't even know they're getting it taken off because of the stakeout. Um. So I just think all that was, you know, if if I every time I walked to the line, I put the collar on and off. Excuse me. I think that would be something that would make them more aware of when they have it on. Yeah. I mean, Roxy McMunn was national amateur champion. I couldn't, if I wanted her to air and I had, I couldn't get her to air if I had a collar on my hand because she would jump into my side trying to get the collar on. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't even, that was just, she, to her, 11 years old, that just meant she was going to work. Mm-hmm. She was not at all. And she'd act the same way in the trial as she did in training for her whole life. But when she saw the collar, she would, jump up and try to like put her head in the collar because that to her that I get to go get birds now. Right. It had no negative connotation. Like, Oh, I have a collar on. I have to pay attention because I'm about to get my in trouble. 
Right. It was just a function for her to get the birds faster. That's cool. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, LoneDuckOutfitters.com is another great way to support the show. If you want to get a hat, you want to get a little swaggy swag, check it out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. That's another place you can support the show and show up to a hunt test repping the gear. All right, you had mentioned watching birds. So I have an old dog. She's probably sleeping on the couch downstairs right now that at, oh, I want to say Idaho's Master National because you get a couple more walk-ups than normal. On a weekend test, you get one walk-up, and I don't really do a lot of walk-ups in training, so it's not something that maybe I should do it more so that I I can address it, but it's just like it's the thing. In in those series, you get a few walk-ups, and she started going, I know where that is. I'm looking at the other two dudes out here about to throw and this is short, you know, the walk-up's always right there. She's like, I got this, right? That's that's her attitude. Well, So she stopped watching the walk-up. She stopped watching the walk-up. In training, if I do it with her, I just, I, I quick send. So I'll still have like standout guns, people that look like they're about to throw, but they all know they're not. Walk-up bird goes off. She looks off. I just say her name. Would you make a correction at that or... Or like a sit, stick, sit, or sit, next, sit, here, go get it? Or would you just quick send like I've been doing? Well, so um, that's one difference, I'd say, a little bit in the... Well, yeah. If you're, training, if you're training with hidden guns all the time or field trials with visible guns, and that's part where the distances come into play. So if I have a 400-yard long-retired gun and I have to look right past the fire station... Mm-hmm. 150 or 200 yards away it's really hard for those dogs to pay attention and stay in that long bird that's right you know now with the hunt testers certainly to me when the guns are hidden and they're blowing duck calls they start looking from tree to tree and bush to bush and trying to anticipate where the next duck call is going to come from mm-hmm. so you know i try to balance that with more singles off the multiple guns i'd probably be more apt to have some visible guns mm-hmm. yeah. and do singles off of that. Like you said, have your two visible guns in that exact scenario. It would depend a little bit. Um, like my, my general rule was if they swung off the bird before it hit the ground, there was a correction. Mm-hmm. Now I tended to you. I like the stick better than the collar. I was, I've never been, I know some people it's hard, the timing with the stick They're maybe a little older, little it's harder for them to use the stick they can't make the correction you know you have a stick a call and a whistle and you know you're fumbling you got two left thumbs but i always i like that correction to come from me versus a caller i felt like the dogs that got nicked on the line a lot whether it was for line manners or or the bird watching tended to make them a little more anxious where they almost like 
they still wouldn't watch the bird, but they wouldn't look at something else. Yeah. You know, you'd almost seem like shaking, trembling a little bit almost. Like, and I think a lot of that was anxiety. Yeah. And I think we created some of that anxiety with the, when we're nicking a lot online next to us versus just a, a swat once in a while. Right. So I like to use the stick, but if they looked off before the bird hit the ground, stick and then put them back on it or and the then gun. send and then either send i mean depend there's lots of what ifs but okay. and then send or or then make them st- if they look back and then stay on it for a few seconds and i might swing to the next bird and proceed with the test i was going to do gotcha but if it's bad enough yeah certainly i would make my correction i'd push them back to it and i'd send them mm-hmm. very good all right cool so we covered bird boy blinds is there anything else that you think I need to learn about bird boy blinds before I go and screw it up? Because actually, no, I, there is. We talked about it in the kitchen, and I we baby touched on it that you want them to be far enough along with like poison birds and stuff. I think we do need to digest that a little bit more for folks because when it was described to me, it was great for young dogs it was great for problem solving it was great for this and it's like i when i was trying to do it and i was trying to be diligent about it and i'm like yeah i was talking to blaine i'm like blaine i'm effing this up dude it is not what you described to me and how i'm getting reactions from these dogs i so i'm just done with it and now i've got the man the myth the legend on the podcast to get it straight from the mouth right so i don't want someone to listen to this and go my freshly senior level seasoned dog i'm doing bird boy blind i mean like walk me through that like i just don't want someone to jump into something that they shouldn't yeah again i i'm sure there's plenty of different people that use different things in different ways right so i'm based i'm just explaining how how we used to use it in our program Mm -hmm. and that was strictly as a problem solving deal it was not something that all the young dogs went through I wanted those dogs to learn when they came off of pattern blinds and then blind drills. I wanted them thinking about running blinds out to the end of the field. I didn't want them thinking about there were there were no guns in the field. They were just running cold blinds, repetition. And then that should be fresh enough along. If I'm getting a loopy sit fresh out of pattern blinds, then I skip something. Yeah. So then I'm probably gonna I can back up and and work on that in that environment. But sometimes as the dogs get older, things start your standard and the te- your standard, maybe you get a little bit more lax, the, the test get a little bit harder, and things start to deteriorate a little bit. But I want that dog to understand what running your blind is fully before I'm going to do a BB blind. I don't want them to just run out there and happily run to the feet of a gun mm-hmm. when you say dead bird back. That should not be what they're thinking about. Right. They're, they need to see the person and say, okay, well, I'm not worried about him. I'm going to the end of the field. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to, that's just not a normal part of our program is the, you know, it's only for problem solving. We get, we would get dogs in three, four, five years old that come in with a loopy sit. Well, what are we going to do to reprogram this? And that was our process. Mm-hmm. If we got a dog in and it was fine, but they never saw him. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think I'm going to be doing a lot of pile work. <laughs> Dang. Cool. Um, I do. I, I did have a segment that I want to touch on. Kevin just gave me the finger uh, of wrapping it up, but I don't want to just yet. Are you okay? I'm good. Cool. Um, I have this idea in my head because you've gotten to touch 
and train and and live in your home some of the legends that are on a lot of dogs pedigrees if you could uh think back in the memory bank you know grady traveler right mm-hmm. um which traveler was grady's son correct and he won the national amateur the year after grady did and Trav was actually one of the puppies i raised for i raised the winter trip chad brought him down and and uh you know it was winter it was middle of the winter and t- he's in the mountains in tennessee and said i can't this i'm not gonna be able to get him in the water can you mm-hmm. keep him so i had him and socialized him and taught him all that basic water stuff before then he went to jim van egan from there and came back to us i think he was we ran him in some derby so he was still under two when he came back to us and then of course the rest is history yeah but let's talk about that because uh say their registered name so that Jim, John, Sally, and Sue can look at their dog's pedigree and go, holy crap, that's my dog's great-grandpa or grandpa. So, so Grady was um, Cody's. Cody Cody cut a lean grade. Mm-hmm. So Chad Baker owned Grady, and he owned a construction company. So the, Grady, the lean grade was the greater, and that's where Grady got his name from. Mm-hmm. And then his very first litter that he had was Trav, which his was uh, Paddle Creek's Pack Your Grip, which was a saying that Chad's dad used to use. I, I believe it was his dad, dad or grandfather. I think it was his dad. Would When they were going to go do something, he'd come in and say, hey, pack your grip. We're going going somewhere. So mm-hmm. Just a saying he used. So that's where Trav got hit. So he was traveler because they were going to go travel somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so those two were pretty cool. I mean, Tr- Grady... I mean, I think we've touched, I think, you know, and I think we touched on it last time and I've touched on him with Adam and Jimmy and some of the health problems that Grady had and, you know, coming back from two different grass ons to win the national after that and uh, just uh, how big of a heart he had and how, I mean, just an incredible competitor, basically. And then Trav, um, he could be a little noisy when he was little, a little squeaky. Didn't really have to do it. It kind of went away. You know, it wasn't one. It wasn't something that we really had to deal with. But he had. He was one of those that ran around like mad. You know, if he didn't find the bird, he was running around in circles as fast as he could with his head up. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of look. We always used to say, "Well, there's no quail left in the field." (laughs) You know, because he was. uh, He could cover some ground in a hurry, Mm -hmm. and uh, so we trying to figure out what to. How can we improve his hunt pattern? You because we hated to mess with the dog's hunt pattern because right. then it's like you can get into popping or quitting or you start to make them nervous about what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. They're not looking very hard for it anymore. Right. So we ended up, we went through a, not a long period of time, but when he got into those big runaround hunts, we just stop him, call him back and rethrow it. All, all the way to you. All the way to us. Most of the time, it would come out on short retired guns is when he would do it. Honestly, okay. he'd get to the area and he would just start running. But call him back, no pressure. Just call him back, bring the gun out, rethrow it, maybe leave the gun out. And it was like, no, don't go out there and run around. You saw where that bird landed, go get it. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of made him didn't it never changed his his uh, speed or his desire or style. 
but it started to make him kind of start to realize, okay, I'm getting in the fall area. I better actually look for this bird. Right. Instead of just run around. And I always, I, you know what I call It's like taking hot laps. Like I know I'm here, little loop de loop. I'm trying. They're not, a lot of them aren't, it's not like they're not trying. They're just correct. like going, hell yeah, I'm here. I'm about to find this duck instead of going, I know it's right here. Yeah. 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 Same thing. I mean, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't switching. He wasn't yeah. leaving the area. He wasn't, you know, but he just, that's what Quinn's starting to do. I'm, I'm looking at my buddy Dustin in the back. Quinn is starting to do a little bit of that. Like she's, she had a little bit of time off from puppies and she used the front foot stuff very consistently. And since then it's been getting to the fall area and just like, I'm here. Mm-hmm. And then it's like a crappy hunt pattern, and then she'll grab it and good. Yeah, it's it's. I'm still. <laughs> I tell you the story, and you know, it still makes me. If I had a dog doing the same thing, it still make me nervous to fiddle with it. I know, but, but I mean, you, you know, those that was an interesting thing about him that we did that worked. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, you know, there's some interest. There's all, all these guys have a little bit of a story. You know, Mickey, um, Charlie Hines, Mickey. Windy City's uh, Mighty Wind, Mouse. Windy City's Mighty Mouse uh, won the 2016 National Open. Mm-hmm. And was another puppy that I had that I picked up at eight weeks old and raised for Charlie. Mm-hmm. And he, his dude, when he was little, he was noisy in the water. Barking going out. He would bark to the bird or the bumper. Mm-hmm. So it was bad enough. You didn't want to let him keep doing it. Right. So trying to figure out what to do. So I actually collar conditioned him younger than I normally would. And then turn when he would bark, I, I would say quiet and just a real low nick on a real low level. Mm-hmm. Just to try to make it a little uncomfortable for him when he barked. But I didn't, but it was tricky. You didn't want it high enough to stop him. Correct. Because I mean, this is still a, he's not six months old yet. Right. So the last thing you wanted was him to, you didn't want that to inhibit his retrieving. Or his desire, but I just want a little something. So when you're barking, you're just gonna it's just gonna you're just gonna feel a little and that he figured it out and it went away. Mm-hmm. And kind of the same yeah, same scenario. I mean it, I was nervous doing it, but it was like I I can't keep are what you, are you gonna do? I did the same thing with a dog two summers ago. He was he couldn't get there it, if you've never seen it before. They can't get there fast enough. They want to literally run through the water, and they're just, it's like every lunge, it's, arr, 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 arr. Yeah, because he was quiet on land. He was quiet yeah. in the truck. He was quiet in the house. He was quiet. I mean, it was just, he was frustrated. He wasn't getting to that bumper fast enough. Exactly, and I did the same thing. I was scared to do it, but it was on like a one or a two low where it's just enough, and I didn't say anything. It it was just a, a low tick on a bark. He barked, tick bark tick bark tick and then i don't know the third and i did it like we were talking about just doing reps Mm -hmm. like throw the same mark it's not going to be a challenge it's not going to be rocket science you're not confusing him in any other way it's not around land or water it's black and white it was every time he made a noise it worked until we went to a hunt test And, you know, honestly, and going back, just to back up a little bit, a point on some of the problem-solving stuff mm-hmm. we're talking about is if I'm going to go back and tackle this 
stuff and I'm going to do a steady drill or I'm going to work on pile work or BB blinds on a loopy sit. Mm -hmm. Last thing I'm going to do is enter that dog in a test or trial the next week, because I'm going to, if I'm working on steadiness and I'm getting my standard about where I want it, then I go to the trial or the test and they move and then you send them, you just lost everything you were working on. So, you know, that's part of what, you know, when we are talking about, we got three months before these dogs have to run again. Mm Mm-hmm that's kind of my timeline of having chance to work on it is about three months. Well, not that, but I have a prolonged period of time where they don't, where I'm not expecting them to have to run a competition. Yeah. doesn't have to be three months, but what would you, in a perfect world, what would it be a month off six weeks off? It's just, that's just so hard to say because sure. it's going to depend on how the dog, how the dog's adapting to the deal. You know, if it takes me five days of pile work and a week of BB blinds, and now I'm running some cold blinds, and you know, maybe it's going to be a month of cold blinds before I'm, if I'm having to put it this way, if I'm having to consistently correct that dog for a specific behavior and training, I don't want to be running it. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm consistently correcting him for head swinging, if I'm consistently correcting him for, for creeping, for, loopy sits or slow sits or not getting in the water. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to do is take him to a test or trial and expose him to the opportunity to make that mistake without a consequence. Yeah. So not saying that you, you don't ever run a dog till they're perfect because they're not going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. But if I'm correcting that dog, every, every setup for the same thing, I'm not going to take him and run them yet. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel good that we've got almost three months to, work on go back do into our due diligence and and train not push all week and go run a test not push all week and run a test i want to just take a deep breath and freaking train and these dogs and have fun doing it and that's kind of the nature of the beast with trying to get qualified for the you know the master national you have x amount of time and x amount of opportunities yep and especially when sometimes it's hard you might miss a test because you don't get in in time or yeah. something like that. You only have so many opportunities. Yep. So you want to, when you're running, you want to take advantage, full opportunity or full advantage of those opportunities to run as much as you can mm-hmm. and try to get them qualified. But then the nice part is now qualification is closed. What after this weekend, right? Yep. 31st. So the event's not till the end of October 26th. So yeah. that gives us a good period of time to, yeah, to, to work on some things if if need be. I agree. So anything, uh, so you had Grady, Mickey, and Trav. Think you know you kind of talked about some of the negatives. What were their? I wouldn't say negatives, but you know, like like the little things quirks. Yeah, yeah, things to work on. What were some of the things that you loved about them that was just like made them special and fun to work with or raise that was just like memorable? Well, I mean, Grady was. I mean, really was just his will and his heart. And I mean, like I said, he went through two different surgeries, had part of a lung removed, had two ribs removed, had part of his diaphragm removed, and then comes back from that and wins national afterwards. You know I mean? He just, he would, he would have run through a brick wall or he would have died out in the field because he, that's how bad he wanted a bird. So, I mean, that was just something you, you couldn't take that for granted because there's a lot of dogs have, you know, run fast and have a lot of style. But when you really think about it, that, that will and that 
I want a bird more than life itself mm-hmm. is not uh, common. Yeah. What, uh, what about his, any like training quirks that crept up that you, you had to dissect, um, you know, stories about that. You know, training wise, he was pretty consistent, pretty normal. I mean, you kind of, what you saw was what you got day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, when he was younger, he, he came right in, I think right, right when he was two. So he had been through his derby career. He was already qualified all age. And um, so he was training pretty well. Looked like, an, you know, like, man, this looks like a really nice dog. And I was, he kind of hit a little stretch where he just wasn't marking real good. It just wasn't sharp anymore. And it was just kind of seemed odd. And uh, so we kind of talked about it. And we ended up a dog with a, that much speed and and momentum and style you don't usually think we need to dial down a little bit you mm-hmm. think you know well maybe he's just being a little stubborn or which was the opposite so after a period of time of him not doing as well we actually turned the collar down to a three and he started to respond better and it wasn't like he didn't have an overreaction to the collar he didn't vocalize he didn't you know, come unglued. You know, there there was no real way of. You know, you didn't look at him and think, "Oh, that was too much correction," mm-hmm. but it just turned. You know, we turned it down, and he just kind of settled a little bit and got back to what he normally would be like. And I mean, all this was before he started placing. You know, and we didn't have a long history with him, so it was kind of a. Um, you know, he's probably two. You know, first six months he looked great, and then all of a sudden it was like, "Well, wait a minute, why are we?" Why are we going backwards here? Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of, you know, once we, like I said, we went from a four to a three. And right. Things just kind of started to click again He's for him. Interesting. Who did his uh, derby career? Jim Van Egan. Okay. I think you said that. He did. Tra- I said for Trey. He did okay. Trav as well. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. He, Jim's done. A lot of he had Trav, he had Roxy, he had Grady. He's he's had you can't even count. I mean, he's it's a, a unbelievable. I think I listened to him on Pat Burns. Uh, I don't know. He had like six people on over the course of last year or something, and I I jumped in on that, and he was on there, and he rattled off his stats, and he was humble about it, very very humble about it. But it was like holy crap! Oh yeah, Jim, he's an amazing, amazing what those with those young dogs and has done. So, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but it's yeah. Like if I said 50, it's probably like a hundred, like, Oh, I mean, it's still, even I think one of the dogs that Alvin Hatcher won with here recently was a dog that Jim had put through basics. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a crazy career. We'll have to try and get him on the show. If we can try and line that up, that would be cool. But dude, this was an awesome show. I feel like me and you could keep going just because we're enjoying, uh, conversation but uh we'll we'll let you get back i am excited to see you on friday mm-hmm. and run a run the queue and hopefully kick kick everyone's butt that's my goal <laughs> i'm coming to kick butt man i'm not going there for the the fun of it i'm going to win so i hope i i give you a good showing and don't go out in the first and come home at 10 a.m 
Oh, yeah. Then, <laughs> then we'll be talking about that on the next podcast. That's right. <laughs> uh, we do have an episode called Humble Pie. It was from, like, epi- you know, season one, if you will. I oh. feel like every few episodes we end up having a, humble, an episode pie. Of humble Pie. Oh, yeah. When you think you got it figured, they, they got a great way of uh, bringing you right back down. You That's know, half the fun couple, of this. Oh, for sure. A couple sayings I always remember is, you know, you can't can't take the highs too high and the lows too low. And uh, Charlie Hayes used to say, when you when you lose, say nothing. And when you win, say less. That's cool. I haven't won yet, so I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what about when you do real mediocre? Can you be, is there like a, yeah, go ahead and be a smart ass. Yeah, you can be the funny guy in the corner when you're okay, mediocre. Yeah, you can, you can, you can have a podcast. You can, have, yeah. <laughs> you can, have, you can always have jokes. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, Ray, dude, thank you so much. Uh, everybody, it's Ray Vote, the, the Purina man. If you are at Master National, if you're at a hunt test and he's there, if you're at a field trial and he's there, go shake his hand, pick his brain. He's a, a gentleman and a scholar. And, uh, I, I just appreciate you coming and, and doing this in house too. That was really cool. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me again and uh, look forward to the next one. Yeah. And, uh, keep uh, good luck this weekend and thank you. Look forward to, uh, more. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. We'll catch you all on the flip side. Thank you. Hey, join our community. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our YouTube, if you enjoy Instagram, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer. Join patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. The link is in the description. Click that link. Join the community. We've got tons of great videos, tons of great content, and you can ask me more questions. So join it. Enjoy it. We did it for you, and you're helping us produce this show so thank you so much to that community get in get out let's roll patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters hey everyone this is nick from the gun dog it yourself podcast if you enjoyed this show then you might want to check out my show as well we highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode we cover all topics related to hunting dogs Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.